Amen. Isn't that a wonderful truth? Jesus said in the Gospels, he spoke of the sparrows. He said, in one place are not two sparrows sold for a farthing. A farthing is a very insignificant piece of money. You can imagine, I don't know that uh, there are many people that would pay much money for sparrows. Don't really, I've never had a desire to go buy some sparrows and, you know, have a, have a sparrow barbecue or something like that, but <clears throat> for whatever reason, they're, they're insignificant. They're a dime a dozen, right? Two, two sparrows are sold for a farthing. And then in another place, he said, are not five sparrows sold for two farthings? So apparently, they're such an insignificant creature that you can buy two for one farthing, and if you'll buy five, they'll, they'll buy four, they'll just throw another one in for free. And yet, Jesus said, not one of them falls to the ground without your heavenly Father knowing. And then he said, be of good cheer, you're of more value than many sparrows. And the very hairs of your head are all numbered. And for some of us, that's a bigger number than others. But God knows everything about you, knows your needs and cares about you. And we're told that we can cast our care upon him because he cares for us. That's a one, wonderful thing to know. God is so big, but yet he cares about little old you and me. And uh, that's a wonderful truth, isn't it? All right, let's take our Bibles tonight. We're going to go to the book of James, chapter 3. James 3. Last Sunday night, we spent some time talking about the importance of unity within the church here, and not in any way because I sense that there is a spirit of division or anything like that, but I think it's important for us to be reminded of the, really the need and God's expectation for unity within the church. There's no question in my mind that God wants for us as a church to be unified, for us to be together and on the same page. And the Bible uses different uh, words and phrases to describe that. We mentioned last week the statement of the church at Jerusalem that they were all with one accord in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul said that he was beseeching the church that they would all speak the same thing, that they would mind the same thing, that they would be of one mind and one heart. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3, Paul said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. And then it says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In other words, this, this thing of, of, of keeping unity within the church, it's an endeavor. It takes some work and some effort. And so I just believe it's fitting for us in this season of life and ministry that we're in that we consider what the Bible has to say about being unified and in one accord with one another. And so we're going to take a text tonight from John, or James, rather, chapter 3, and what this has to say about our relationship to the brethren. So if you're in James 3, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of the scriptures. James 3, and we'll begin reading in verse number 13. He's just been talking to them about the, uh, the power of the tongue and how careful we must be with the words that we say 
And he said in verse number 13, who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? I wonder how many people raise their hand. That's me. I'm a wise man endued with knowledge. No. Who is a wise man endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of good, a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, <clears throat> glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. You can be seated. I believe that every one of us probably wants God to work among us. I think that's the heart of this church. I know it's my heart. I want to see the hand of the Lord at work. I want to see God working in our church as a whole and using us to, to do things that are above and beyond our own power and ability to do. I want to see the Spirit of God moving among us in the congregation and working in a mighty way to see souls saved and lives changed and transformed for the glory of God. I want to see God working in the lives of individuals within our church. I want to see people that are growing in the faith and becoming more Christ-like and getting victory over strongholds and bondage to sin and and, and, and repentance taking place where is necessary, and relationships being restored. I want to see the hand of God at work among us, and I hope and believe that you do too. But if we want to see God at work among us, it's, it's important for us to understand that His Spirit must prevail. Now, now the Holy Spirit must not only prevail in the service. We don't just need the Spirit of God working through the preaching or through the music in order to stir our hearts and, and emotionally charge us up, but we need the Spirit of God at work in our lives every moment of every day. You know, the truth is that true revival is not just uh, 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 altars that are filled with people and tears being shed and an emotional moving of the Spirit of God, though it can manifest itself in that way. But true revival is something that has an impact and an effect on your life and my life every moment of every day. True revival is the result of the Spirit of God working within us, and we have been called to be filled with the Spirit and to walk in the Spirit. That means 
that if I am to experience personal revival, it's not only going to change the way that I behave in church, but it's going to be change the way that I behave in my workplace or in school or the way that I talk to my spouse, the way that I treat my children or my parents, the way that I uh, uh, conduct myself in public and in my private relationships. It's going to govern every aspect and area of my life. I desire for God to do that in me and in you. It's my prayer. It's my heart. I want to see God at work. I want to see Him in charge. But folks, it's important for us to understand that as a people, if we want God to do this in us and through us, that He has given us a, 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 a network, a, a circle of, of people, what's known as a church, a body of believers of which we are a part, that we are not to be here as kind of that lone wolf out there. You know, I'm just out on my own and I come and worship the Lord with you on Sunday and Wednesday. But, but to where I recognize and where you need to recognize that we are one in Christ. We are one body in Him and that we are to be serving the Lord together. The, the Bible likens the New Testament church to a body. And in your body... Those of you who have health problems and ailments, you know that if part of your body is not functioning properly, it affects the whole body, doesn't it? And so you, you want your body, and a healthy body is a body that functions in perfect unity together. If you were to take the Bible that you have in your hands and in, with two hands pick it up and hold it up, do you know what's happening? There's unity taking place within your body. Your mind is working together with your hands. Your right hand and your left hand are working together to, to grasp this and pick it up. You don't have one hand moving this way and one moving this way. They're working together. There's unity within your body. But when a body is out of order, when there's discord and division within a body, that body cannot function properly. And the same is true of a church. We want God to work, we want God to move, we want to see Him do wonderful things, and if that is going to take place, there must be unity among God's people. We read here in James chapter 3 this, this short but powerful passage that deals with our relationships to one another. And I want you to notice that he points out in verse number 14 the evil of division. Verse 14, he says, But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. You know, there are, almost, there are people that are almost proud of how difficult they are to get along with. Have you ever known anyone like that? You know, oh, I'm just kind of hard-headed. I'm a little bit rough around the edges and and I'm not always easy to take, but hey, I am who I am. And if you don't like me, you can just, you know, get out of here. You don't, have you ever known anyone like that? There are people that are actually sometimes proud of being abrasive and, 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 and being hard to get along with. But the Bible is telling us here, listen, if you are a, a wise man and dude with knowledge, here's what you need to do. Show out of your life that this good conversation works with meekness of wisdom. Don't have bitter envying and strife in your hearts. If you are that way, don't glory in that. Don't rejoice in that. Why? Because this is not of God. Look at verse number 15. This wisdom, 
descendeth not from above. That spirit, a spirit of division, a spirit of strife, a, a spirit of anger and bitterness, that's not of God. And we ought not to rejoice or even in our own selves to glory or think that somehow this is okay, that God just made me that way. Folks, I have known Christians over the years who walk around with it carrying just bitterness and anger and resentment toward other Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ. I've been in churches where there are people who will sit on this side of the auditorium because the person that they can't get along with sits on that side and never the twain shall meet. And folks, that I just want to tell you, if that's you, that is not of God. If there is something in your heart between you and a brother or sister in Christ, you cannot tell me that you are right with God. You cannot be in fellowship with God and out of fellowship with a brother or sister who is also walking with God. That doesn't work that way. This wisdom, that wisdom, the wisdom of the world, the wisdom that is that bitter strife and envying, that, that, uh, the, that spirit that says, I, I like this person, but not that one, and I can forgive you, but I can't ever forgive them for what they did. And that this spirit that harbors resentment and bitterness and anger, it is not of God. The Bible says that this wisdom is not from above, but it is earthly. It's earthly. In other words, this, this is a, a philosophy of the world that has crept into the minds of Christians. It's crept into the churches, and it's divided people, but it's not of God. It's earthly, it's sensual, and then he says it's devilish. It doesn't originate from God, it's a philosophy of the world, but you know where the world got it from? It's from Satan. Satan is a divider. Satan is known as the accuser of the brethren. Have you ever stopped to consider what that is? The accuser of our brethren. You know what, what Satan will do? The first thing that Satan tries to do as an accuser is he tries to accuse you to God. He tries to, he looks at your life and he says, well, look at this failure and look at this sin. And he accuses you to God. And I'll tell you this, he's got clear evidence and a solid case. But with the Father, we have an advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous, our propitiation, the sacrifice acceptable. And he stands at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. We have a good attorney. And that accuser of the brethren, if you are saved, has no ground to stand on because Christ has already paid for all your sins. And so Satan tries to accuse you to God, but he doesn't get very far. God says that's already taken care of. It's done. And so when he tries to accuse you to God, it doesn't work. Then you know what he starts to do? He starts to accuse God to you. He starts to say to you, God doesn't love you, God doesn't care, look at the issues in your life, look at the problems that you're facing, and he whispers in your ear that God can't be trusted. He tries to accuse you, God to you. But if that doesn't work, here's what he'll do. Instead of accusing you to God or accusing God to you, he'll start accusing others to you. And so often that's where he gets us. When, when he comes and he starts to say, into your ear, into your heart. 
that person? Did you see the way that they looked at you today? Did you hear those words that they said that kind of cut and were hurtful? Did you see that thing that they did? And, and, and what he'll do is he'll, he'll try to divide and separate. He wants to break relationships. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. And that's what he wants to do. He wants to destroy your relationship with God. And if that can't work, he'll work to destroy your relationships with the brethren. But God, on the other hand, he's not a divider. He is a uniter. He is a reuniter. He is a reconciler. Blessed are the peacemakers, the Bible says, for they shall be called the children of God. You are never more like God than when you are making peace, when you are reconciling. And so he's saying here that if you are, are someone who has bitterness and anger in your heart towards someone else, this is not of God. It doesn't come from God. It originates with the devil, the enemy, and he is seeking to destroy you and destroy your relationships and ultimately to destroy the church. That's what he wants to do. This wisdom is not from above. It's earthly, sensual, uh, sensual, and devilish. Then look at verse number 16. He says, for where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. If there is division within the church, there's confusion. There is evil. I've had the privilege of pastoring a church that was, as well as I know it, it could be, was very unified around the truth and what God was doing. And man, it was a, we just came into this season where the church was just, we were just all on the same page. And everyone loved each other. And everyone was excited about what God was doing. And I'll tell you, in that time of unity, there was a period of, of a couple of years that we just saw this great, I, I don't know how to describe it, other than to say this unity within the body. And, and boy, did we see God at work. Souls were being saved. Young men were surrendering to preach. The church was growing. Good things were happening. It was wonderful. But there was another time that I was pastoring a church that was uh, not unified. In fact, there was a lot of division within the church, and there was a lot of anger and bitterness and backbiting, and, and from week to week, you never knew what fire was going to just erupt, you know, that we'd have to deal with, and problems were taking place. And I'll tell you this, not only was it a miserable place to be and time to be there, but it was a grief to the Holy Spirit. And we didn't see the moving of God very much in that time. We didn't see many people saved in that period of time. We, we, rather than seeing growth, we were seeing attrition. Rather than seeing people, uh, uh, their lives changed for good, we were seeing people falling into sin and, 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 and families falling apart. And there were just all kinds of problems that were taking place. Why? Because... Where this evil spirit is, where this envying and strife is, there's confusion and every evil work. Paul wrote to Corinthians in 1 Corinthians. In fact, go back there with me. You'll remember that last week we talked about the, uh, 
the divisions that were taking place within the church. And he addressed those things. In chapter 11, he said that there must be divisions among you because there are heresies there. Heresy is the result of division. But go to chapter 14, 1 Corinthians 14. <clears throat> James says, where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. Notice what it says here in verse number 33 of 1 Corinthians 14. Now this is in reference to the, the improper exercise of spiritual gifts. They were, uh, things were just out of order and there was confusion and chaos taking place in the church because they were speaking in tongues but not the way that the Lord had taught them to do so. And he says in verse number 33, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. Have you, I, I don't know about you, I've read that before and wondered, why do you have this contrast? God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. It would seem to me that the opposite, the contrast of confusion, would be clarity. God is not the author of confusion, but of understanding. God is not the author of confusion, but of truth. God is not the author of confusion, but of, but of clarity. But that's not what it says. It says that God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. He's the author of peace. How does confusion contrast with peace? Let me, let me tell you this. When there is division, there's confusion. God is not the author of division and confusion. He's the author of peace. He's the author of peace. So the fruit of division, this evil of division, is that God will not be able to work. If there is something, listen, friend, if there is something between you and another brother and sister in this room, I'm pleading with you, get that right with them. Get it settled. It's not of God. You may have justification for why there's division, why you're angry, why you're bitter. But that does not give you the right to maintain and harbor that anger and bitterness. And if you do so, you're grieving the Holy Spirit and quenching the Spirit of God. There is an evil in division. But I want you to know as we go back to James chapter 4, Verse 17 speaks of the evidence of God's wisdom. When, when, the, when the Holy Spirit is, is in control, here is the fruit of it. Verse number 17 of James 3, it says, But the wisdom that is from above, that which God gives, I want you to notice this, he says, It is first pure. First pure. In other words, if, if the Holy Spirit has preeminence, has the ability to lead within the church, the first result will be purity, holiness, cleanliness. And by the way, I want you to notice that it says it is first pure. In other words, this is the priority. There is actually a time to separate. Because Purity and holiness must be priority. There are times that a church has to say, 
to an individual who refuses to repent and get right with God. They have to say, I'm sorry. We cannot be in fellowship as long as you're living an ungodly lifestyle. And so purity takes priority. It is first pure. Verse number 8 of chapter 4. It says, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. If you want to draw nigh to God, if you want God to work, you must be pure. And the wisdom that is from above prioritizes purity and holiness. But notice it is first pure, verse 17, but it says then peaceable. The one area that we are to prioritize above all else is purity. But once that has been settled, if we can look at someone else and say, yes, they... Their life is consistent with the word of God. They're not living in, in unrepentant sin. We've kind of checked that box of purity. Then our very next priority is to be at peace with one another. It is first pure, but then it is peaceable. If you are walking in the spirit, there will be peace with others. Envying and strife is not of God, but peace is from God. Notice it says that the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable. Then it says it is gentle. It's gentle. In other words, we're not to be harsh with one another, unkind in our words, in our tone even. We're to treat each other with kindness and love. Ephesians 4 Verse 32, a verse that probably a lot of the kids in here have even memorized. And be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Be gentle, be kind, be loving. Why? It's of God. Notice this also then, though, it says, and easy to be entreated. Now, we don't use words so much like that any, anymore. Oh, yeah, I like that guy. He's real easy to be entreated. That's not words that we would say very frequently, probably. But here's what it means. To entreat someone is to appeal to them. It, it's, to, it's to go to someone with a need or a concern and to kind of present your case. Have you ever had someone that you knew you had to talk to them about something but you had a pretty good sense it wasn't going to go very well. You ever felt that way? Boy, I have. There's some kind of a problem. There's some kind of an issue that, that I need to address. And I, you know, I just know when I bring it up to this individual, when I talk to them about this, it's not going to go well. And they're not going to respond well because this person is not easy to be entreated. They're hard-headed. They're thick-headed. They're stubborn. That's not how we ought to be. We should be easy to be entreated. The wisdom that is from above, the, 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 the fruit of the Spirit of God in our lives makes us humble and approachable. Are you humble and approachable? If someone comes to you, a brother or sister in Christ, not with a critical spirit, but sincerely, with a concern? Do you listen? Or do you bristle at that? 
resist that. Easy to be entreated. Notice it says full of mercy. Are you willing to show mercy? You know what mercy is? It's offering forgiveness when it's not deserved. I think most people are probably willing to offer forgiveness. If you're a nice person, you're willing to forgive someone when they deserve forgiveness. When I say deserve forgiveness, I mean, you know, they've messed up, but they acknowledge that, and they came and sincerely apologized, and they're trying to make it right. It's easy enough to say, okay, all right, you know, nobody's perfect. Yeah, you hurt my feelings there. You said something you shouldn't have, but you acknowledge that. You, you know, you, you came and tried to make it right, and so that's fine. I'll let it go. But mercy really isn't that. Mercy is this. You have no reason to forgive that person, and yet you do anyway. Mercy is not giving that person what they really deserve. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. I'm thankful for the mercy of God. I didn't have to make things right with God for him to forgive me. He made things right. All I had to do was receive his forgiveness. Accept it. He showed mercy. And boy, sometimes that can be hard to do, can it? When someone just doesn't deserve kindness, forgiveness, and love. It's easy to love some people. You know them and I know them. People that are just likable. E easily lovable, you know. But boy, there are some people that they've just wronged you. They've hurt you. Maybe they're a real jerk about it. And it's hard to love them. And it's hard to forgive them. But the wisdom that's from above, the fruit of the Spirit of God in your life, shows mercy. It shows mercy. Hold your place here, but go with me to 1 Corinthians 6, if you will. I know we've referred to 1 Corinthians quite a bit, but this was a church that was dealing with divisions. Here was one of the problems that was taking place. Apparently, some people in the church felt that they had been wronged by someone else in the church. So, in order to fix it, they took them to court. They sued him. Now, is that what Jesus said to do? If thy brother trespass against thee, take him to the judge. Is that what it says? No, it says go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone, right? 1 Corinthians 6, verse number 1, Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Go down to verse number 5. He says, I speak to your shame. Is it so that there's not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goeth to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. Now, there, now therefore there is utterly a fault among you, because ye go to law with one another. Then he asks this question, listen to this. Why do ye not rather take wrong? Why do ye not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Some people are very naturally the get-even people. Uh, 
the type of people that have a very good memory and they keep score, you know. <laughs> to some of us, that comes naturally. And those type of people a lot of times have trouble accepting when things really just aren't fair. We hate injustices, don't we? What, watch the, I'm not encouraging you to watch the movies, but any movies that you have watched, think about it, in almost every one, there's some kind of an injustice at some point that just infuriates you. It sucks you in, and you're thinking, man, I can't wait until the end when all of this is set straight. When the bad guy, the crook, he's going to get caught in his lies, and this is all going to be set straight. I love the book of Esther. You know why I love the book of Esther? Two words, poetic justice. It's wonderful, isn't it? That dirty old Haman and his tricks, and it all turns around on him, and he gets what he has coming to him. I like that. That's who I am. In my, in my flesh, that's who I am. I like to make things right, and I hate it when things are unfair and just not right. And here's what happened with the church at Corinth. Something had happened between two brothers. Maybe they had a business deal, and it went south. And one of them made out okay financially, and the other didn't. And they felt that they had gotten the short end of the stick. And they were going to make this right. We're going to go to the judge. We're going to go to the court. We're going to settle this thing once and for all. Because it needs to be fair. After all, God is a God of justice, is he not? Here's what Paul says. Why don't you just allow yourself to be mistreated? Ooh, that's tough. What if you just accept that you've been defrauded and go on with your life rather than dragging the name of Christ through the mud. Can I tell you, there, there really is a reason that Christians can let go when injustices take place. It's not just that we say, you know, I'm going to be the bigger person here. But our God is a God of justice. And in the end, everything's going to be straightened out. God will see to it. And he's a better scorekeeper than you are or I am. And so I can be wronged and mistreated, and I can be confident. I don't have to retaliate against this person. I can let God deal with them. It's between them and him. Now... When I'm on the side of being wronged, that's a very comforting thing. But if I were to be real honest, there are probably times I've wronged some others as well. And I'm going to be on the receiving end of God's justice and have an answer for that later on. And you know what? I'd rather just show some mercy and expect that God will give me mercy in return. Amen? Here's the thing, we need to be merciful, merciful to each other. What, what does all this have to do with unity? Everything, listen. Purity, holiness takes priority. The church needs to remain pure and right. And there are times, sadly, that we have to divide, we have to separate because of ungodliness and wickedness because the word of God has been violated. But listen, beyond that, 
We strive. We endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We show peacefulness and gentleness, and we're approachable and humble and teachable and merciful. And the other side of that is we also show fairness and equality to one another. Back in James chapter 3, notice that this wisdom that is from above is full of mercy and good fruits, but then it says it's without partiality. It's without partiality. We are not to be partial or preferential in our love for one another. I've said before that there are some people that are much easier to love than others. And that's true within a church. There, there are people that you will automatically connect with because you have things in common and you think alike. And, and it, it's just easy. The relationship is no effort. And there are other people, man, it's hard. It's hard to love them. You know what I'm talking about? Don't look at them, okay? I got to close my eyes when I'm preaching that. Don't want anyone to get the wrong idea. If I looked at you, I'm not talking about you, okay? But there are people who are hard to love. But our love is not to be partial. A church shouldn't be full of cliques of people. These people get along with each other. These people get along with each other. And they keep, keep separate. That's not how it's supposed to be. We're without partiality here. We're all on the same plane. Sinners saved by grace. That's who we are. No one's more deserving than anyone else. We're to be without partiality. And then notice it says without hypocrisy. Be real. Be genuine. Don't be fake. If we want unity in the church, don't be fake. Don't pretend to be something you're not. Let, let's realize that we're all flawed. No one's better than anyone else. We're just here. Sinners saved by grace. Trying striving to know the Savior and be more like Him. And we can help each other with that. So love each other. Be at peace with one another. Show forgiveness and mercy. And notice the effect of this in verse number 18. It says, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. What does that mean? Well, we want the fruit of righteousness. We want to see the Lord at work. But if we want to see the fruit of righteousness, we have to sow the right seeds of righteousness in the right kind of soil. And that soil and that seed is peace with one another. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. You know what that means? That means you have the ability to plant a seed of righteousness that can become fruitful for the Lord in this church in the future by showing a peaceableness in yourself. Folks, we ought to be together in this. And I know that it's not easy. It doesn't just happen. Unity doesn't just happen. How do I know that? Because we're commanded, endeavoring 
to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It takes work. It takes effort. But it's a command. And if we want God to work, we need it. Let's pray.